Georgia's DBHDD is warning all Georgians that half of all opioid deaths happen at home when people take an oxy or a perk with a glass of alcohol for stress or to sleep. Learn more about protecting families from opioid overdoses at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut, and so happy, as always, to have all of you with us for today's show. Um, Just a quick reminder, tomorrow, Fridays these days, um, you can uh, watch us on Facebook Live, which we uh, only do one day a week at this point for a variety of reasons I won't bore you with right now, and also watch the show uh, at at 7 o'clock tomorrow night on the GPTV, GPB TV network. Uh, that's Fridays these days, and a lot of you are starting to tune in, and I, and I appreciate that very much. But today, we continue uh, our broadcast on the radio. You can also listen to the show on Facebook, although the video isn't there. And it's Thursday, which means that my partner from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution is the boss of the AJC, the editor, Kevin Riley. Hey, Kevin, how are you? I'm, I'm well, Bill, and it's, it's good to see you and looking forward, forward to another great show. I, we have a lot to talk about, Kevin. That's certainly the case today. Um, Emma Hurt is with us. Emma is, of course, a reporter at Axios Atlanta, which you can get in your inbox every morning. Uh, Emma, how do people subscribe to Axios Atlanta? Axios.com slash Atlanta should get you there. Pretty straightforward. I so. I'm sorry. Uh, I noticed that at, at, I think your most recent post, which probably was yesterday, was uh, you did an item on uh, the kind of surprise endorsement by Governor Kemp or, or appointment of, the, of uh, Andrew Pinson to replace David Namius as a justice on the state Supreme Court. It caught a lot of people off guard because typically there's a pretty intense process by which candidates are vetted, but Kemp went ahead and appointed Pinson uh, without uh, any of that uh, unfolding. It, it had a lot of people in the legal community uh, particularly upset about it, Emma. Yes, but what I also learned is that Pinson was number two behind uh, just Justice Colvin last summer. So it, it wasn't actually that out of left field um, in some communities. And you know, I spoke with Fred Smith at Emory and uh, Don mm-hmm. Samuel, a defense attorney, and both thought, you know, he's qualified and this is not that big of a surprise, actually. So, well, Thank you for putting that in perspective uh, uh, for us, uh, because it's a story that's gotten a good deal of attention, especially in the legal community. Tammy Greer, professor of political science at Clark Atlanta University, is back with us. Tammy, I, our listeners always love to know a little bit about people who do the show. You've been doing the show for quite a while now. But this morning, before we went on the air, is the first time we learned that you are the proud mother of triplets, for goodness sake. (laughs) Hi, Tammy. Hi. Good morning. Yeah, they are are my pride and joy. How old are they? Um, They are 10, will be 11 really soon. Um, And I am, uh, I can't believe it's time has flown by 
of course, I'm still the same age when I gave birth to them. They, they have okay. just grown up, that's all. <laughs> I can't believe when you give birth to triplets, you're not automatically 15 years older and having to deal with three at once. I've got a, so I have a question you may not be able to answer. Do you have any idea what percentage of the births in this country are triple births? I mean, you're yeah, in a very, very small minority. Right. It's, it's somewhere, it's uh, less than 5% um, that are, so I think it's somewhere around 3%. Um, and okay. they're all girls, too. So that makes it uh, very fun. Well, thank you for sharing that with, with us. It's kind of fun to know that about you. Um, okay. All right, let's get right to uh, uh, our conversation about the topics in political news. Kevin Riley. Uh, a Senate committee uh, on Tuesday passed out Senate Bill 393. It's a bill that would allow people to sue social media companies if their posts are removed or altered because of the views they express. Supporters say, and this is from a, an article in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, supporters say that the bill would prevent Facebook, Twitter, and other companies from censoring conservative political Views And we all know that Republicans tend to think that they're the targets of, uh, of social media uh, action to take down uh, uh, their tweets, their Facebook posts, whatever. Um, and uh, on the other hand, the critics say that uh, this would make it harder for social media companies to uh, address bullying, racism, hate speech, and the like. Uh, but, Kevin, this is certainly a Republican response to, among other things, the president being banned from Twitter. Yeah, it's a really strange and complicated situation. I mean, at its root, of course, right, is the frustration that I think our society has developed around social media and, and how it uh, affects our society, how people behave. But uh, it also brings a lot of First Amendment issues in. Now, a lot of conservatives want to make this argument uh, that it's uh, against the First Amendment to, you know, take down a post, ban a post. But these are private companies who can operate in any way they, they want. Uh, I mean, I would compare that part of it. Uh, I would never compare uh, the newspaper, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, to social media in most ways. But in one important way, we are responsible for what we publish on our website and in print and make judgments about that all the time. And uh, in the end, that's what social media companies are also trying to do. Now, we can question their judgment and question just how active they are in it. But um, it, 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 it looks like a solution that probably won't work anyway, even if they can get this bill passed. Um, one of the points, uh, Tammy, that the supporters of this bill make, contrary to what uh, Kevin suggests, is they believe that a social media platform should be treated like common carriers, in other words, like telephone companies um, and other uh, uh, railroads uh, and, and other uh, businesses that have services so vital that they should be limited in their ability to, to discriminate against uh, customers. Tammy? Well, that's a very interesting point being, number one, uh, the Internet is not a public utility. So how can the vehicle that carries the social media um, entities be treated um, as, as, as a utility when the actual uh, carrier is not treated as a utility. Um, I, I also find it interesting um, that it is specifically to conservatives. 
uh, when it comes to this bill rather than it being uh, broader. Um, and I agree, though, um, with um, Kevin, because when we understand that the First Amendment is Congress shall make no law, um, so um, to say that someone's First Amendment um, rights are being violated is, is false because um, by creating an entity um, or by creating a law to tell an entity that you cannot do such is, in essence, you know, infringing on the social media's ability. But, you know, one thing to be clear, you don't have to use social media. You do not have to use it. So how can you have – it is not a daily part where it is vital to your existence. You know, I think Emma? it's notable that um, federal courts have blocked similar bills in other states like this, just for larger context. And another interesting thing here is the story of State Senator John Albers, who's one of the co-sponsors mm. of the bill, who lost his job um, amid the, the controversy over the election law. There was a post that was that was incorrect that, you know, said that he voted for the bill, which actually he didn't. He was one of the few Republicans who didn't. Now, he acknowledged that this would not have, this bill would not have prevented that from happening, but this is, this larger topic has become personal in the Georgia Senate Republican Caucus. Kevin? Yeah, I think that Emma's example is a really important one to understand, but it also, I would, I think Senator Albers, uh, you know, throws a bit of a red herring out there. And here's what I mean. The decision to fire him was not made by a social media company, nor the people who posted, nor people who reacted to the post, or anyone who may have took down or promoted the post. It was made by the people he worked for. And in the end, that's what I think Tammy was pointing out is, you don't have to use social media. You don't have to re respond to social media. And and you don't have, certainly don't have to listen to the people who are misinformed on social media. So it's a, it's a very, uh, very confusing issue. And, um, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't think any of us can really come up with an answer, but I, I don't, as Emma points out, I, I don't think even if the bill passes in the end, it, it will be challenged in court and I don't see any way it survives. But, but Kevin, Senator Albers would say, I, I presume that, um, the, he was fired when it was brought to the attention of his employers through social media um, that he had voted for a bill, which, in fact, he never voted for in the first place. So, so he would make the point that if it hadn't been for misinformation posted on social media, I wouldn't have lost my job. Well, yeah. Okay, so let's carry that, that, that argument forward and make it personal, Bill. What if someone after the show today posts that you used um, – foul language on the show in, in violation of, of, you know, federal broadcasting rules and the stations and the GPB's uh, uh, rules and ethics code. And it took off on social media. You're a popular guy. There are probably people out there who don't like you. The thing goes crazy. Um, I leave the show mad at you. So I, I, uh, I start sharing it. Well, you have to believe that the people who run GPB would say, well, let's find out what really happened before we do anything. Mm. And so mm. that is why um, I think that it, it, would, it wouldn't solve that problem. I mean, people can make false accusations and always have in our society. So thank you. Yeah, I understand that point for sure. Um, Emma, though, look, the 50,000 foot look at this is 
just to remind us how powerful all social media platforms now are in driving political debate in this country. And that's in the long run what a measure like this is a response to, the fact that social media has become a dominant form of communication that certainly can be misused. It can be, and it also is, you know, changes changes the game of how campaigns can get their information out. They don't need journalists mm. anymore. Um, Marjorie Taylor Greene, for example, is 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 one politician who has kind of given up on uh, journalists in general and and gets her message out directly. Um, and and so it, it 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 has fully changed the strategy. Some would argue, of course, that they should still talk to journalists. I would argue that. We would probably all argue that, but um, campaigns have been successful without it. We will watch how this bill moves forward uh, in the Senate and certainly keep track of it on the show. One quick note, just to amplify what Emma said, um, Texas and Florida passed similar measures. And uh, as she pointed out, it was those states that the federal courts have already said, no, these laws are unconstitutional. So this bill is likely, Tammy, to move forward, despite the fact legislators already know that in two states, uh, federal courts have already said it's illegal. Right. And that's just to make sure that they can get some type of momentum in other states to, um, to try to pass certain other laws. Um, similar to it, to try to gain a, a groundswell within um, those certain communities in order to get such um, such laws passed, even though they can be deemed um, and will probably be deemed um, unconstitutional by federal courts. I also want to uh, point out that it's interesting that um, the the charge is the social media companies are taking down some of these items based on uh, the information being false. Um, So, you know, similar things happen where false messages go out, whether it is mailers um, inside of, um, you know, that we get from the post office, um, or, you know, if an ad is put out on television or on the radio, right? So it's, it's not as if those messages are not going out. And I think that that context is missing in the, the discussion is that it is about the content to which they are putting out, which is violating the rules of that particular organization. Um, okay, wait, Kevin, I, wa- I know you want to get back in, and it looks like we're going to spend just a couple more minutes on this because it's an interesting subject. Uh, Kevin, let me throw something in, and then please, you, you join the conversation again. Um, Tammy's point is interesting Because, in fact, the standards by which a TV station can take down a campaign commercial um, that is misleading, dishonest, whatever, are so terribly high that, in fact, it is virtually impossible for a TV station to refuse to take a a, a commercial from a candidate um, or, or, or a PAC. So, I mean, that would argue the other side of this entire uh, issue. That would that would suggest that if social media companies were treated the same as TV stations and campaign commercials, then uh, they shouldn't be able to take all this stuff down. The point, but in fact, um, we know that as private companies, they still have that right. Kevin, yeah, it's an incredibly complicated thing, and what it really comes down to is uh, most publishers of content. Uh, in our in our world, 
uh, have to take responsibility at some level for what they publish, right? And so in your example of, of a TV station, um, the Federal Communications Commission licenses those stations and therefore can regulate them. In my business, newspapers, um, we do not have any kind of regulation, but we are subject to libel and defamation laws. And we may get into that later in the show because of the Sarah Palin case. I know, Bill, we don't know if we'll have time for that, but, but I hope we do. Um, and yeah. therefore, there's a self-policing of what you do. The real challenge is that the uh, Internet and companies like Facebook have all of the freedoms that um, our society provides communications and communicators and companies that do that work, but it no, has borne almost, in my view, none of the responsibility because one way people would argue you could regulate them is they ought to be subject to defamation and um, libel laws, but they have taken the point of view and they have been allowed to take the point of view under the, the government standards that have been created that that is not their responsibility. What they published is, is not their responsibility. It's incredibly complicated. We could find like a group of constitutional lawyers who would, who would talk about this forever, but it is here. I'll just summarize it this way. I believe that when the history of our age is written, Mark Zuckerberg will be one of its great villains for what he has created and done to our society and for the lack wow. of responsibility he's taken for it. Well, and thank you. Uh, and again, it re I want to reiterate what I said at first. It just shows us how social media has completely upended how we communicate ideas um, it, it, to each other uh, today. Um, all right, let's move on. Um, I want to turn to a story that hasn't gotten a whole lot of attention, but I'd really like to hear this panel's views on it. Um, Ellen Eldridge, who uh, reports on, on health and medical issues for GPB, published a story on the GPB website that, here's the lead, a new study from the University of Georgia concludes that emergency contraception medication, sometimes known as the morning after pill, should be more accessible. Um, Experts say anyone serious about curbing abortion rates, the article goes on, should expand access to all forms of birth control, including emergency contraception. And uh, uh, the University of Georgia, Emma, in their research found that, that only 57% of Georgia pharmacies carry the emergency contraceptive plan B and in rural parts of the state, it's only 46% as opposed to 63% in metro areas. But the point of all this, Emma, is that at the same time, the legislature continues to look at ways to restrict even further abortion in Georgia. Uh, what the University of Georgia study suggests is that if you're going to restrict abortion, fine, but then make other forms of contraception more broadly available. Your thoughts, Emma? This is really interesting. Um, and... You know, I actually had to do a little research because even though I've been covering the abortion issue, I was I didn't really realize where the morning after pill lay in the debate. And I reached out to Martha Zoller, who's now running the Georgia Life Alliance. Mm. And she said that um, they don't take a policy position against the morning after pill. And, you know, other scientists classify it as contraception, not abortion. So this is a very interesting kind of angle here on an issue that we normally see no gray area or uh, wiggle room on at all. And of course, you know, this is very different from the bill that is working its way through the legislature that may or may not pass that would 
um, target, you know, the abortion pill that you would get from a doctor. This, just so we're clear on the two, the two pills that we're talking yeah, about. They- that's right. The bill making its way through right now would uh, uh, ban uh, women in Georgia. The, the Biden administration has said that women across the country uh, can, with a prescription, get an abortion pill in the mail. The bill working its way through the legislature now here uh, would deny that. You'd have to go to have an in-person visit with a physician to get a prescription. It couldn't come through the mail. So that's a different matter entirely. But as long as you mention it, we should let people know a little bit about it. And we'll talk more about that bill as the as the weeks go by. Tammy, uh, let me bring you in. One of, one of the reasons that we broke this down by rural and urban areas uh, is that the University of Georgia uh, suggests that it's in rural areas particularly where there's higher rates of poverty, less access to um, medical treatments and the like. It, it's there that they feel it would be really useful if more pharmacies carried this pill. Correct. And it is um, a, an, a, another example of how rural areas across the country are neglected, how it is disproportional from a political, social, economic, and medical standpoint, that rural areas, and now we see here in Georgia, um, where there is a lack of form, um, a disproportionate act, um, rate of access to medical care. And um, if we're talking about, you know, from an economic standpoint, um, if, if you have, if you continue to have people who um, may not be able to financially support um, a child, um, and, and they lack the accessibility um, to have a medical service. Let's be honest what it is. It is a medical service. It is a medical procedure. Um, if we deny the access to that, then we are keeping a cycle of, of, of poverty, of people who are, um, dis, um, are majorly in, uh, affected by you know, policies that are damaging their life uh, pro- uh, projection. And I think that we really have to take a step back and understand that folks oh, at the Right to Life and other organizations are concerned about the birth of an individual and not the life of, a, of an individual. And if we put it into perspective that it's about um, that pro-life is actually the whole life of someone rather than the birthing of then perhaps we can have a clearer discussion about what these um, laws and restrictions do to individuals. Uh, Kevin, what I'd love to know is the next level of this story, which is why we see that pharmacies in the state are not carrying this pill at, at, in, in greater numbers. So, for instance, Kevin, why a Walgreens, why a CVS, even in a metro area, are <clears throat> carrying it at a rate of about 63 and the question becomes, is there a political uh, side to this where the pharmacies are concerned about the image it creates? And we don't know the answer, and it's probably inappropriate for me ev- to even mention uh, a possible political motivation. Right. I mean, you'd want to know, is it a, even a simple supply and demand thing, right? I mean, they, right. Uh, are these right. companies simply making a product available based on its, uh, the, the demand for it? But, I mean, I think big picture here, Bill, the thing we should think about is, Look, look, the, the pandemic laid bare the weaknesses in Georgia's public health systems, it, you know, its rural health. I mean, everywhere we looked, we learned that, gosh, 
for a state that is so important to the country and so important politically, and politicians love to say is the number one place to do business, we have to pay attention to important things, especially something like this, that literally is an issue for one half of the population of the state, women's yeah. health of women and what their choices and preferences would be. And I think that, you know, the recent uh, budget that the governor put out there that doesn't really increase public health funding is a bad time. It, that the, if the state's going to continue to thrive and be successful, the health of its population will be critical. And this is an example of the kind of thing that we ought to be making active, informed decisions about and understand better. All right. Thank you for that. Um, let's do this. Let's get our first break of the show out of the way. And when we come back, uh, let's talk a little bit about electoral politics, among other things. You're listening to Political Rewind. Emma Hurt of Axios Atlanta, Tammy Greer, Clark Atlanta University, and Kevin Riley, editor of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, join us uh, for today's show. Uh, I mentioned at the beginning of the show that if you want to read what Emma and her colleagues at Axios Atlanta are writing about, you can subscribe to the Axios Atlanta newsletter, which you can get every morning in your email. We have a newsletter, too. That's relatively new, the Political Rewind newsletter, um, which comes to you once a week on Wednesdays and in which I hope uh, to be able to share with you what I think are some of the biggest news stories in politics of the week. But every now and then, I also like to throw in a few odds and ends. So, for instance, if you subscribe right now, you can get the newsletter that's out this week in which we include, in honor of Marjorie Taylor Greene, Ina Garten's Recipe, for gazpacho. Um, that's uh, easy to get to. Just go to gpb.org uh, slash newsletters and you can subscribe. All right, let's uh, move on. Um, Kevin Riley, uh, the AJC has done a poll of uh, the uh, uh, candidates for uh, office uh, in Georgia in the upcoming elections. But now the Trafalgar Group, which is a conservative uh, polling organization, has released a poll of 1,000 likely Georgia Republican voters. They polled them between February 11th and the 13th, just to set the standards they used. And it showed Brian Kemp with a 49 to 40 edge over uh, David Perdue. They had about 8% undecided. But just to add one item to that, they also said that 40% of the people that responded to the poll did not know that uh, David Perdue was uh, Trump's endorsed candidate. Kevin, your polling, I think, also showed, uh, I don't think you had a head-to-head between Kemp and Purdue, actually, uh, but in, in but your poll did have each of them again, running against Stacey Abrams, so like in a bank shot, Brian Kemp did better than David Perdue. Yeah, I mean, the, the race is still shaping up, but I think what this, right, what this seems to show is that uh, it'll test how important that Trump endorsement is. I mean, if, if you have these people who, I think the number of what, 40% of Republican voters aren't aware he's been endorsed by Donald Trump. That's what the poll says. Well, that might mean, gosh, when that 40% finds out if they all believe that that endorsement is significant and important, that could be a huge, huge deal for, uh, for David Perdue. 
Yeah, you know, um, Tammy and then Emma, what I've said several times on the show that I, I, I think I'll be interested if you agree is that while, while Brian Kemp certainly is raising tens of millions of dollars compared to David Perdue not doing as well at all, he raised less than a million dollars in the final fundraising period of 2021. 20, um, and while uh, Kemp is getting endorsements from major figures. Um, it's hard to tell whether that Trump vote, which is a little harder to ascertain, might be there for him as uh, the primary approaches. Tammy? Well, that's very interesting um, because I saw uh, that um, Trump endorsed candidates from other states um, are not doing as well as they thought that they would um, with the former president's endorsement. I also um, am curious as to how it plays out in Georgia simply because of the shift in uh, demographics within the state. And um, I still will argue that um, perhaps the people who consistently vote in Georgia uh, lean conservative, uh, yet um, I, I would argue that you know, the, the state as a whole um, is not as conservative as one may have thought um, a few years ago. So it will be interesting to see who comes out and vote, um, how they vote, um, and uh, will the Trump endorsement here in Georgia um, be very different from what it appears to be in other areas uh, across the country. Emma? You know, uh, polling is so funny because you can sometimes you can read whatever you want into it. <laughs> um, and, you know, the David Perdue team would say, that their numbers have gone up since he entered the race in December, and he hasn't spent that much money. And that organically, that is a good indicator for them. The Kemp team remains in the lead and feels good about that. But, I mean, the, the number that I have been thinking about is the, I think it was 43% in the AJC poll of Republicans who said that a Trump endorsement would make them somewhat or much more likely to vote for someone. And then there's like something like 43% who didn't know. So it's those do not know people that, that um, I have my eye on at least. And, you know, the Trump, the, the power of the Trump endorsement, um, you know, based on what I've heard from, you know, strategists has decreased in the last year nationwide, right? But the question is in a Republican primary in May, what are we looking at and, and how strong will it be? And that remains an open question. Yeah, I, I think Emma's got a great point there because everyone's trying to see which way this is going to break. The thing that I that, you know, that really got my attention was last week when Mitch McConnell um, made that statement about basically we need to quit talking about this January 6th thing, because I don't know that there's a person on the American political stage who is shrewder and more capable of acting in only his self-interest than Mitch McConnell. And to me, that was a clue that people like Mitch McConnell might starting be seeing that this, this is eroding, this Trump endorsement may not be as important because he kind of went out there, you know, he doesn't do things like that without a purpose. He did, that was not an impulse that he followed. And so I do think that as Emma pointed out, whatever that number is, that 40 ish number about people who can't decide whether what Trump has to say is important to them or not, there must be something going on. And I think the smartest, best, most well-informed Republicans seem to be indicating that they that they see it getting away from Trump. But who knows? 
All right. Um, as long as we're talking about uh, the governor's race, um, our good friend Chuck Williams, who's on this show with some regularity, a reporter down at WRBL-TV in Columbus, uh, scored a really terrific interview with David Perdue. We talked to him for almost a half an hour uh, uh, earlier this week. And I want to play just a portion of that interview because it speaks to uh, this whole question about whether or not the big lie will continue to be an issue in this cycle, especially in a Republican primary. Uh, Chuck asked him if he believed that the outcome of the 2020 uh, presidential race and the runoffs in January of 2021 were legitimate and if he would acknowledge that they were. Here's what Purdue said. If you're a reasonably minded person, you would say based on the facts presented in the law, in a court of law, that you would at least go investigate those, but we've had none of that done. In fact, we've had disinformation, really, from some of the officials up there. I even called for the resignation in November of last year after we saw what was happening. I asked for three, um, I, I joined three lawsuits. I asked for a special session several times to get at this so we could avoid it for the January runoff. And I even asked for the resignation of our Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger. So we've been in a fighting against this all along. And this year, the evidence is beginning to peel, to uh, uh, come out. And it's not the conspiracy theory uh, that came out immediately after the election. These are hard, cold facts that are indisputable. Emma, what do you, what's your response to that? And let me add a piece of information. While he was in Columbus... Uh, Purdue went and spoke to a local women's Republican group, and he said this. He said that there were 235,000 people who did not live in Georgia in November 2020 who voted in the January 2021 runoff. It turns out that that number is wildly exaggerated, uh, but it's all part of his effort to convince people that there was something fishy about the election for president, and then his runoff. Emma? This is what he's been talking about from the beginning, right out the gate. You know, um, he said that he wouldn't certify the election, even though it's not legally possible for the governor not to do that. Um, he has said repeatedly that, that Kemp, quote, caved to Stacey Abrams through the, quote, consent decree. It's not a consent decree. It's a settlement agreement. Stacey Abrams nor Brian Kemp were on that, and it didn't change any election laws. I mean, he said that there was evidence of ballot harvesting that the GBI was told not to investigate. The GBI told the Georgia GOP that there was nothing to investigate. It's, we can just keep going. Um, and, and this is what David Perdue was talking about on the campaign trail. And he's talking about it because he has an audience who wants to hear it. And um, this is his election strategy. This is the strategy of Representative Jody Heiss, um, State Senator Burt Jones, his fellow Trump endorsees. And um, it, it's just to me, so amazing to think about, you know, one year plus ago when we had David Perdue running for Senate, how different this strategy is, how different his campaign is. He talked in that interview with Chuck Williams about, um, about, how, uh, about how, you know, last year he was able to unite suburban voters and rural voters and, you know, came in first place, as he says, in November and get more votes than anybody else, even though he ultimately lost. But here he's running a very different campaign that is that is mm -hmm. geared towards one section of the Republican electorate above all, it seems. You know, um, first of all, I, I really admire what Chuck did getting uh, Purdue on the record and, and that, that all that stuff out there, because, you know, 
politicians can visit corners of the state and sometimes avoid having to, you know, be ultimately accountable for what they say. Hey, a quick thing, Bill, on that 235,000 number or so that he threw around, I mean, there, what he's really trying to turn into something that's not there is the number of people who did not vote in the original election who did vote in the runoff. You know what I mean? And so sometimes those are referred to as new voters, the implication being they registered since then and, and all of that. But there, the truth is, is really that number is the people who didn't vote the first time but voted in the runoff, which is okay, which is legal. Some of them were probably new, you know, hadn't voted before, but it wasn't like a whole bunch of people who came to the state or anything like that, the way he's implying. And honestly, as I listened to that interview and I listened a couple times, I just have this weird sense like, he lost too. I would, I would think he, I would believe him more, you know, at least consider believing him more if he was concerned about his own race. But he only seems to be talking about Trump losing. To me, that's just really weird. I mean, if he thinks that the whole election was fixed, then what about his race? But he only talks about the Trump race. I think that's strange. Um. So I actually, and, and, and certainly if Emma, if you know this, I was just trying to quickly search this. I just want to fact check something. Um, it is certainly true you can register between a general election and a runoff to, as a new registrant. And Emma, my recollection is that in Georgia election law, if you don't vote in the general, you're not able to cast a vote in the runoff. But I'm really trying to find that, and maybe there's a listener out there who can fact check that pretty quickly. Are you up to speed on that by any chance, Emma? That was my understanding of state law, too, but I'm So let me, let me spend some time on <laughs> Bill, while you all are talking, let me spend some time, uh, and I'll dig up where I found that, because I, I, I thought I, I, I was pretty confident I'd read that in one of Mark Nisi's stories where he explained you, you may what very was going well. on. I, I don't mean yeah. to take up so much time on the show talking about that, but I also want our listeners to be on top of what's happening. Hey, uh, let's talk about another uh, number in the poll, Tammy. Um, the Trafalgar Group found that uh, their thousand likely Georgia Republican voters would elect Herschel Walker at a staggering percentage. Seventy percent uh, said they support him over six percent supporting Gary Black and uh, fewer even than uh, Latham Sadler and Kelvin King, the others in this race. I mean, it, you know, if you're one of the other candidates in the GOP Senate primary, you, you would hate to hear us say on this show that, this race is essentially over, but it's hard to look at it unless something really dramatic happens and Herschel Walker disqualifies himself, Tammy. Yeah, that would be very interesting, um, being um, the history, the name recognition and such of Herschel Walker in Georgia. Um, I am unclear at this moment if his standing has more to do with his ability has more to do with name recognition than it actually does with um, connection with policy or even the constituency. Um, so it, it, it it's very uh, fascinating to see what that looks like. Um, I'm also um, maybe the the cynical political scientist in me is looking at it from the standpoint of it behooves the Republican Party to have a black man to run against. Um, a black man that is on the Democratic side. Um, so you can, you, the universal you, can take 
um, the notion of race, um, ethnicity out of the, uh, the conversation um, if both of those candidates end up on the general election ballot. And then it can become more about ideology. Um, and if there is an actual policy discussion, um, at the same time, David Perdue, and when I listen to Herschel Walker, it sounds like word salad. Like we're saying these buzzwords that uh, poll well or that hit the emotional ether of the audience to which that they are um, speaking with, um, rather than it actually being a thoughtful discussion uh, about the issues at hand. Um, Emma, what's, what's fascinating about this potential matchup is that both Herschel Walker and Raphael Warnock are setting records, are leading the fields, their perspective fields, in terms of the amount of money that they are raising nationwide. They're out in front of everybody else uh, in, in, in the Senate uh, uh, hunt. Yes? Yes, and it's indicative of you know how important this race is nationally in 2022. And as you, know, as you all talked about, indicative of especially Walker- just clearing the field um, on the Republican side and, and, and getting all the money. I will say, Bill, we have to fact check ourselves. You were able to register uh, between the general and the runoff last year. You can register between the general and the runoff, but if you haven't vote, if you are a registered voter, Kevin. I'm looking at usvotefoundation.org and reading from their Georgia runoff election fact sheet. And so I'll just read what they say. If you are a Georgia voter, we hope you'll exercise your vote. If you didn't vote in the 2020 general election, you are still eligible to vote in the runoff, and uh, you may register through December 7th. Thank you. And, and again, I, I, I didn't mean to take up so much time on the show, but on the other hand, I think it's uh, nice to be able to share with our listeners fact-checking in real time. That's what we well, as journalists do too, all the time. <laughs> right. These, this kind of uncertainty or you know, lack of clarity is what these falsehoods are built upon. So, I mean, if I mean, and I, I'm going to talk to Mark Nisi, our election reporter uh, later today, uh, I'll get a hold of him and, and just absolutely confirm this and send you a note so you can let people know maybe uh, tomorrow. But but it's it is where the falsehoods begin and grow. And part of what I know you're trying to do on your show and what we're all trying to do as journalists and academics is keep that from happening. Absolutely. I want to be as accurate as possible, and I apologize that I threw a monkey wrench in there. All right. Let's uh, go ahead and take our final break of the show and come back and address a couple more topics on today's Political Rewind. Welcome back to Political Rewind. Um, Emma Hurt, if I can, let me start with you on this uh, uh, next story. Um, Rivian, of course, is now committed to building an enormous auto assembly plant out there in Rutledge, Georgia. There's a number of protesters out there, people who live in the community, environmentalists who think it's a bad place. They don't want to see the plant built, and we'll be following that story uh, in the weeks and months ahead. But at the same time, um, Governor Kemp has staked he has a big stake in this. He put an enormous amount of state resources behind attracting Rivian. They promised to be, be, uh, bring in at least 8,000 jobs. Um, and there's no question that Rivian, by all accounts, has built a great vehicle. But New York Times did a big story fairly recently pointing out that Rivian is not delivering product. They can't get 
uh, their SUVs, their pickup trucks out there, and their stock has fallen by nearly two-thirds from its peak when they had their initial public offering. So, you know, it seems to me, Emma, that uh, Ryan Kemp, as he runs for re-election, has got to be watching carefully to make sure Rivian can start actually delivering vehicles and, and, and keep their uh, reputation as a leader in the market alive. You know, it is interesting to see that, and I think it's relevant, especially here in Georgia, because it might indicate why we haven't actually heard very much from the company in response to this opposition. Um, And, you know, I've reached out to the company and they've promised that they will be conducting town halls in the future, but they might have their hands a little busy with other things in the short term. And I think that's frustrating to, you know, officials in Georgia who have uh, worked so hard to get this this, uh, project. And for the for the opposition, you know, it's the town of Social Circle, I think, has something like 4,500 residents, and this project would bring 7,500 jobs. So the scale is insane, and it is not surprising that it would be scary to some people because it will really change this community. And I've heard that there were similar protests when the Kia plant came as well. I mean, something of that scale is a big change. But I think right now, lots of eyes are looking to Rivian to come in and address some of these concerns. Tammy, Rivian, uh, part of the issue here is that um, uh, there are some domestic manufacturers like General um, Motors and others who are really starting to make a huge commitment to electric vehicles. So is Toyota. Uh, Hyundai's got a, um, a an electric vehicle out. So Rivian's not going to have the field um, to itself. Uh, you know, of course, Tesla's been out there already. But it's going to be interesting to watch, uh, Tammy. It is. It will be very interesting to watch. Um, I, I also uh, want to, to, to note, and we discussed this um, on a previous show, that part of the probably the angst with the deal uh, from the community, from lawmakers and such, is that details, you know, were not discussed publicly. And, I, and while I can appreciate, you know, you want to have negotiations so you can lure business here, I think it's important for lawmakers to understand um, and for the governor to fully appreciate that these are taxpayer dollars that you're offering to um, these companies to come in. And, um, and there should be some sort of transparency here, particularly if you want people on board with what you're saying, because the, you know, the, the, the product package may not actually match the product. So you can say that it's a great deal. You can say 75,000 jobs will come, but how many of those are people who actually live in Georgia, right? How many are actually from the people that live in the community? How many of those jobs are coming from other parts of the country um, that, that are not grown Georgia? So I think it's important to have some transparency if you want people to agree to the deal um, without so much opposition. All right. Um, uh, it's an interesting story, and um, we'll follow that, too, in the weeks and months ahead. Kevin, let me change, change the subject for you as we uh, come toward the end of the show. Sarah Palin lost her libel suit against The New York Times in court this week. Not only did the jury come back and say no, libel was not committed here, but the judge, even before the jury returned its verdict, while they were deliberating, said that no matter what they did, he was going to throw out the case. What are the implications of that for those of you in the newspaper business and for all of us in journalism? 
Well, Bill, before I get into that, I just have to apologize. I did email our Mark Nisi on that point we were debating, and I have the clarification. Yeah. I think we ought to do that. I'm sorry. Mark says, <laughs> Mark said, I asked the question. He says, runoffs are open to all registered voters. It is accurate to say that if someone did not vote in the okay. general election, they can vote in the runoff, just to be super Thank clear. Thank you. So, all right. Palin. Uh, to the... The Sarah Palin case, very difficult to summarize, and I'll say this. Um, she claimed the New York Times defamed her, despite the Times correcting their mistake uh, as quickly, really, as they could. The concern here is simple. The Supreme Court, two of the justices, are inviting a revisit of the landmark New York Times versus Sullivan case, which established the rules around defamation and libel. Concern among media organizations is, wow. Will politicians find a way to file lawsuit after lawsuit and intimidate newspapers and others from covering them aggressively? And right now, Palin lost the case, but people expect this effort to continue. Yeah, um, and of course, the point is that public figures have to uh, have to uh, have a higher standard uh, than uh, ordinary citizens in terms of proving uh, libel against them. Kevin. <clears throat> Yeah, and some legal scholars are thinking that that's where the law will be uh, attacked. The definition of a public figure uh, being harder to uh, claim. Emma, real quick, because we are really close to out of time. She lost in court, but in the court of public opinion, it's just another shot over the bow of those of us who are in the journalism field. Another, for those people who think the media is uh, distorting the news, is biased, um, the decision by the judge in that case and the jury isn't going to change their thinking. That is very true, and a sad truth about uh faith in the media right now. Our industry has shrunk. People don't know journalists personally anymore. Um, that's one thing I like about this show is that you try to humanize us all. Um, and we're <laughs> truthful when we mess up because all humans do. And, um, and that's important. And too few people, I think, realize that. Well, uh, considering I'm the one who messed up about the election law in terms of who can vote and who can't run up, I thank you for pointing it out that we do try to be transparent here. We are out of time uh, for today's political rewind. One of the topics we didn't get to, but we can certainly address tomorrow, is to watch how the trial in Brunswick is unfolding. Some of the testimony this week has been searing in terms of the racism that has um, been on display uh, from at least two of the uh, uh, defendants down there, the Travis father and son. And we'll talk about on the show that in, on the show tomorrow. In the meantime, uh, Emma Hurt of Axios Atlanta, Tammy Greer of Clark Atlanta University, Kevin Riley of the AJC, thank you for a really uh, interesting conversation on today's show. And my thanks, of course, to Natalie Mendenhall, Sam Burmistoss, Jesse Neiswanger for the work they do every day behind the scenes to bring Political Rewind to all of you out there. We'll be back again tomorrow with another brand new show. In the meantime, take care. Please stay healthy. See you all tomorrow.